Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, George Saunders, on his new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. George Saunders is the author of 12 books, most recently the essay collection A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which was an international bestseller. His debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, won the 2017 Man Booker Prize and the premier Gregor von Rizori. His collection 10th of December was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the inaugural Folio Prize. He has been awarded a MacArthur Grant and a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Penn Malamud Prize for Excellence in the Short Story, and was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2009. In 2013, he was named one of the world's 100 most influential people by Time magazine, and he currently teaches in the creative writing program at Syracuse University. And today we're going to be talking about George's latest collection, his new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. George, welcome back to Little Atoms. Neil, thanks for having me again. Tell us first of all then how you would describe this collection. Oh boy. A book of which it's necessary that everyone owns six copies. How about that? Uh, no, I, I um, you know, I, it's just one of the earlier, I, I haven't talked about the book uh, much yet, so I'm still kind of struggling to understand it myself. But I think it's to me, it's kind of a continuation of the mindset of 10th of December, the last book of stories, maybe with the, you know, the addition that the world changed somewhere in there. So I think it's um, the thing I really like about it, I think, is that I, I feel it's pretty intense. It's kind of strange. And uh, uh, I definitely, at this point, I can find a lot of my, the things that are really concerning me in there kind of hidden within the lattice work. But I'm actually, you know, it's fun to kind of start going on tour and hearing what other people think about it, because I'm not quite sure. I know I did my best, but beyond that, I'm and the fact that everybody has to own multiple copies that I don't know. <laughs> so why the nine-year break since the last collection, 10th of December? Well, it, actually, it was kind of continuous. I mean, one of the stories, Mother's Day, was written pretty much at the same time as Lincoln and the Bardo. And then I was working on the other stories peppered in there, you know, during during the tour. And then writing the Russian book. So really, it, was, it wasn't a break in production, but just a break in, you know, deciding that this is, a, this is now ready to be a book. And what about the, the collection in general? How did this collection of nine stories come together as a whole? Well, you know, the way it, it usually works for me is I, I just start with anything, just trying to get one story written, you know, and I'll, I'll, 
I'll write that one. And then I have a pretty intense, almost like obsessive, uh, as we've talked about before here, a way of, of working, you know. So I'm just coming back to it again and again and again. And by the time that's done and I've got one story finished, I think what happens is that the subconscious kind of comes alive with a bunch of other possibilities. And, and uh, it feels that way anyway. This, after writing one story, two or three will appear. So I pretty much just go after those two or three and do the same thing with them. And, you know, underlying all that is an idea that if I'm accessing my subconscious in this deep way and working really hard, um, the thing that results will have a coherence. And when I'm halfway through, I go, oh, yeah, I kind of can feel that I need another three or four things roughly in this direction. And then I kind of send the subconscious after that. And then at some point, I'm like, okay, these nine stories are sufficient to do what I'm trying to do here, whatever it is. And then I just call it, okay, this is a book. And with this one, I had two other stories that were in there for a little bit at the end, and then I, I took them out. So, you know, I, it's kind of boring, but for me, it's just all kind of trusting your, your intuition and trusting that if you trust your intuition over and over again through iteration, the resulting thing will somehow be smarter than me. So it's very laborious and kind of uh, spontaneous process. So we talked about a swim in a pond in the rain when it came out and I decided before I even sat down to read this book that I was going to ask you some sort of question that was, you know, what lessons that we learned from a swim in a pond in the rain can we apply to reading these stories? And then a couple, at least a couple of the stories really reminded me of Chekhov short stories. And I'm thinking here particularly of the story Sparrow and maybe My House as well. Um, so let's talk first of all about the story Sparrow, which is not a lot happens, but we get a very humane look into a life. Yeah. And, you know, you're just right that those two stories definitely I had Chekhov in mind and especially the way that, that he he can get it done in six or seven pages, you know, and, and he's very happy to carve off a tiny bit of life and dwell on that. Whereas my tendency is to kind of want to do something really huge and kill somebody at the end. So I, I kind of sense that one of the um, markers of maturity for me might be able to, to write stories about smaller things, you know, not, not necessarily the big momentous moments. But yeah, so I, I had, uh, let's see, I think I was, I had just finished, I'd finished the Russian book and we were up in the Catskills and I just woke one night with the first four or five lines of that story in my mind or something like them. And, you know, that happens all the time. I, and usually you just go back to sleep. It's, it, you know, you, <laughs> you get up in the morning and it, it, the thing you thought of didn't make any sense. But th something about those lines, I, I just thought, you know, you better get up. And so I got up and it was winter and cold. And I went into the kitchen and just sat down and, you know, turned the computer on and wrote those first five lines. And then somehow I just was able to keep going. And I wrote a first draft, a whole thing that, that night. And without ruining the story, the one thing that happened in it was about halfway through, uh, the story is kind of in a collective voice of the community talking about this woman. And I could kind of feel that the story was saying, okay, this naive woman who doesn't really have a very clear picture of herself or her charms has got to be, you know, taken into the ditch by the story. And Part of my mind said, well, okay, I guess that's what stories do. And another part kind of rebelled and was like, you know what? That's so predictable. Let's, what if, you know, is there, has there ever been a time in the world where such a humble person kind of blundered into happiness? So at that point, I started to kind of pull against my own story a little bit. I mean, literally sitting at the kitchen table, like rooting for this woman and trying to find a way for things to turn out differently. So that was a kind of an interesting moment. And it was 
kind of a demonstration of something I've talked about before, which is that, you know, you're you're always dealing with your reader's expectations. That's actually the most potent thing you have when you're telling a story. So I say something, you have an expectation in return, and then I work with that somehow. So in this case, that process was playing out within my own head where I had set the story up to be a train wreck for this sweet young woman. And the reader in me was saying, oh, come on, George, don't do that again. That's too easy. That's like the low-hanging fruit. Can you give us something else? And then in the process, of course, I actually ended up feeling like I was saying something kind of true about the world, which is that you just never know. You know, we, we can have our judgments. We can have our expectations of how things are going to turn out. But the world is so vast and wonderful that it's always surprising us. And the story in my house as well has that in that we think it's going in one direction and then the payoff is about something completely different. Obviously, again, we definitely don't want to give away how that one goes. Um, but just tell us something about that story. Yeah, I think that the trick is, you know, to um, as you're writing stories, for me, the big thing is to be so open to what you've done in the first two pages that you can come up with something that both takes those two pages into account and, as you said, takes it off into an entirely new direction. That's kind of the whole game. Uh, so that means being, I guess, you know, fond of your first two pages and, and polishing them to the place where they're actually saying something. And then almost like a, I don't know, like a, I think of like a, a loving parent, you know, saying to the story, okay, now you're doing great so far. What else would you like to say? You don't have to say what I think you're going to say, you know, like that. So in that one, that was exactly it. I carried that around in my head for, you know, maybe two years or something, just a, a, a little nugget of the story that I won't give away. And then when I actually went to write it, I got all that down. And then just at the 11th hour, my mind came up with something completely different, something I hadn't anticipated. And that's the pleasure of it, you know, to find out that you don't have to control everything. You know, you have to be, you have to show up, you have to work hard. And then there are all these kind of hidden gifts that the mind has for being creative and being spontaneous that will come to the table. And for me, that's the the light. That, that story was about a five-day I wrote it in five days, which for me is very quick. And then, but the revelation came on day four, you know, and I went, oh yeah, that's, oh, that's interesting. I, I've been carrying this around for two years and I never knew that's what the story was about. You mentioned that some of the themes in the stories are a, are a carryover from 10th of December. Obviously we're, you know, a decade further, further down the road to hell since then, since you wrote that book. But the two stories that seem to me to have very sort of similar themes, the title story, Liberation Day, and then the story, Elliot Spencer, are both about people being exploited in slightly different ways by the powerful. Tell us something about what's going on with these two stories. Well, I mean, what happens for me is I'm sitting in front of a blank page or a computer or whatever. And the first impulse, and, and one I've really learned to trust is what would be fun, you know, or another way of saying it is, which voice right at this moment, is available to you? And would you like to try? So uh, for me, that's often an unusual voice. Like I love a voice that's got a little weirdness to it or a little distinctiveness. So I think with both those stories, it kind of started with the idea of how do I justify trying a wild voice? So with Elliot Spencer, I had the thought, well, what, what would a person sound like if you left his brain completely intact and functional, but sort of removed all the data from it, all the... Um, I guess, the neuron habituation. So he's just a literally a very bright, verbal, blank slate. What would his voice sound like? And I kind of just started as a just a sort of a fun challenge to myself. And then 
and what I know from years of doing it this way is that if you start with that and you can do a voice that's kind of funny and entertaining or whatever, the story will kind of rise up around it to justify that voice, explain it in some way and, and support it. And then, and here's a, the most important thing for me is if I'm doing a voice that I really love and it's fun and peppy and I can kind of generate it endlessly, then plot is no problem. If, if, you, if I can talk in a voice that I enjoy doing, things will start happening, no, no doubt about it. So that's the way it came and I've just that desire to do that voice. And then uh, Liberation Day was kind of the same. I think I was just, although that, that one has a root in the Russian book too, because it's strange how the mind works. In that Russian book, I looked at a story by Turgenev called The Singers. And um, at the same time, I was working on a screenplay with a friend about the Semple Girl Diaries. And somehow I wanted to do a story like the Semple Girl Diaries, where there were these women that are basically hung up as lawn ornaments. And that phrase, the singers, the singers, that was in my head. So those two things came together to produce this kind of weird sci-fi vignette. So, you know, I, it seems kind of random, but that's the way it works. And for me, the whole thing is to try to find something to be fascinated by and something that I keep saying the word fun, but really that for me, that's the, that's the real watchword is, is it going to be fun? If it is going to be fun, then all the other things that we associate with literature, like, you know, plot and theme and rising action and meaning, they'll all arrive. But for me, they don't arrive unless I'm having some fun in the first place. You mentioned the voice in those stories, and I'm sort of fascinated to talk about your use of language and the voice of the characters, which is done in capitalized concepts in the middle of sentences. And it feels like not so much necessarily a child learning to speak, but like an AI or something like an artificial intelligence, how that would learn to speak, how you would program it to be filled with ideas that were basically concepts. Yeah. And when, in a way, I kind of think that's uh, what we are in a sense. I mean, you know, the world is just, you know, vast and, and it's, there's no concepts in the world. It's just energy, you know? And, and so then we come into the game and, um, I suppose at some level we're designed to stick around, you know, and to, and to reproduce and to propagate the species. So then concepts, you know, we, we think, oh, that's a wolf. Stay away from that guy. You know, he kills you. But all of it is kind of AI. You know, we, it's literally, it's, it's artificial and it's intelligence and it's happening in our heads. So I think I take some delight in, um, I guess, in, in playing with that and kind of seeing, you know, what I think it is, is we have a habitual way of speaking that's quite linear. And it's designed to move us around in the world and get things done. And that's, of course, wonderful. That's, I mean, that's important. But that way of speaking also is not really truthful. It's, it's not really in perfect sync with all that is. So I think sometimes I like to kind of take that language and deconstruct it just to kind of show that it's kind of a placeholder. You know, language is, is a perpetual approximator. And most times that's fine. It, I mean, if I need to get to the hospital and you give me very factual directions, I appreciate it. But at some higher levels, existentially, when we, you know, wonder why we're here or, or what's going to happen to us and so on, language really does fail. So I think one thing that literature can do is kind of just through the super attention to language, it can remind us that we're using a tool, you know, and that the tool can lead us astray. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to George Saunders and we're talking about his new collection of stories, Liberation Day. And George, the two stories that we were just talking about, the title story, Liberation Day and Elliot Spencer, are dystopian speculative stories set, I guess, lightly in the future, um, but in the sort of direction that the world is going. There's a couple of stories in the book that also have a sort of similar theme, but feel less further into the future and less speculative love letter is the one i would like to talk about of those which is a letter from a grandfather to his grandchild basically in a world where only slightly exaggerated to the world we live in now where immigration is obviously seen as um the great evil by the presiding government and and anybody that does anything to help immigrant people is picked up and picked off by the police. Tell us something about this story. Yeah, well, that one really was just, it started out anyway, as me (laughs) before the last election, just venting about what I was feeling and particularly my own sense that, you know, I spent a lot of time pacing around the kitchen, having big lectures in my head, but I wasn't doing very much. My wife and I were kind of just up there at the house, you know, and, and I thought, sort of like, well, oh, that's interesting that, you know, when I'm reading history, I always judge people so harshly, people who are on the wrong side or who are passive in in the face of some big thing. But it seemed to me, and it does seem to me that, you know, this democracy is really in danger here. So, and yet there I was playing, you know, playing the guitar and and doing uh, jigsaw puzzles and hoping that it would turn out well, you know, and, and, and doing the, you know, the normal things like giving money. And if I could work it into my writing, I would, but it felt 
like not enough. So um, I have some family members who are more on the right of things politically, and we did a visit and talked, and then some young people I knew who are really to the left of me, which is pretty hard to to be, but they were. Uh, we had a talk, and it just kind of reminded me of that. I don't know how when you have those discussions, even if they become fights, which these sort of not quite fights, but they became arguments. That's really a, a one way of having familial love is to talk frankly and respectfully about these things. So I just, for some reason, thought I'm going to just pretend to be doing that and write a letter to this fictional grandson from the point of view of a guy who is sort of aware that he's not, well, he's, it's over now. It's, it's past the point of, of fixing and he's thinking back and he's aware that he didn't do enough. And he's kind of rationalizing that to his grandson. So it started really just as a, an experiment. And then it, um, I found myself able to say what I really believed in a way that didn't feel like propaganda, you know, or didn't feel like overconvinced rhetoric. And part of that was because it was, I pronounced it as a short story, which meant that, you know, it had to not be about me and that this guy had to have a certain charge that wasn't mine. So part of that was the fact that, you know, it was now some number of years down the line and it was too late. That's one thing. And the other thing was, I, I like to think that in that situation, I'd be a little more proactive than he is. But then within the course of the story, I felt like he was changing a bit. He was doing that thing where you you express your beliefs and even as you're expressing them, you're kind of casting doubt on yourself, you know. So it was an interesting experiment. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, a, I don't think I've written anything quite like it before. And I was kind of intrigued by it, you know, that I could be as earnest as I was and still hopefully get it to work as a story. Well, another story that, that does seem to hark back to your older short stories is the story Ghoul set in a hellish theme park and how the society that lives in that park, how it organizes itself and I guess makes the best of things in a, in a bad situation. Well, you know, uh, it's funny how these things happen. And I'm always looking for any kind of little, you know, bit of inspiration. With this one, I had gone to, I was in LA. They let me record the, my backlist uh, on audiobooks. So Civil Warland had never been recorded since my first book. So that goes back to 96, you know. So I, I thought, oh, well, these stories, you know, they're old and I probably won't really know how to read them and I probably won't like them anymore. But actually, I really liked them. It was almost like they'd been written by some other person, you know, kind of a slightly snarkier, more <laughs> more angry, slightly more verbally adroit version of myself, you know. So I had a great time reading them. And, and as I was reading them, I thought, oh, it's funny, you know, that these stories are able to get into some pretty interesting places because of their, they're so weird and they're, and the voice is so manic, these kind of manic first person, present tense narratives. And at that time, you know, I was just a young guy and I was just desperately trying to find a way to become a writer. And it had occurred to me that I maybe had to do something really excessive, you know? So I did this whole, the whole book is really strange and dark and kind of smart ass, you know? So it was interesting to go back to those and feel that they still had a charge. And then I thought, all right, well, let's try it again. Let's give ourselves exactly the same sets of permissions that that younger person gave himself and see what happens. And so that was the story, Ghoul. And the main thing is I just am trying to be, yeah, I guess actually I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to be weird and funny in every line and trying to resist the same impulse we just talked about in Love Letter where, you know, I'm trying to be kind of a thoughtful person who's trying to evoke the reader's sympathy by showing the world very similar to hers. With the ghoul, it's just like, well, no, I'm just going to be jarring at every line. And I want you to be a little disoriented, but 
not so disoriented that you don't follow me. You know what I mean? So it was just really a romp. I just had a lot of fun. And then, you know, what's so weird and kind of magical is if you're having fun, then the big things will come in there. The big questions will come in. Otherwise, the story, the souffle won't rise. So even in this really silly voice that's so over the top, I could feel actually, you know, of all the stories, that might be the one that is the most sort of quote unquote truthful in conveying how I feel at this particular historical moment, weirdly. So what is that story saying about the present moment that we find ourselves in, do you think? Well, you know, I mean, I almost feel like I should say, I, I don't know, but I, it's saying it the best, you know, but, but basically I, I think where I find myself, and this is more as a person and as a writer, but it comes into the writing. I find myself kind of a little bit exhilarated actually by the extent to which my expectations about the world, say if we dropped in eight years ago or 10, were so incorrect. You know, the world went in so many directions I absolutely couldn't have anticipated. And many of them, at least the ones we hear about most, are pretty discouraging. You know, I mean, you know, you know the litany. I mean, that, that we, we invented the car and now the car is killing us, you know, killing the planet. Political forces are such that we can't seem to muster up the resolve to fix it, you know. Politically, it seemed like, at least from my limited point of view, we were at a place where America might actually make good on the, you know, the promises in the founding documents. And then suddenly we took this crazy swing to the right. The pandemic comes along and we managed to make that a topic for fighting, you know. So all of these things, I mean, ultimately what they say is, George, your expectation machine wasn't so good, you know. In other words, it's like a dramatic demonstration of how uh, I misperceived reality in the way we talked about earlier, you know, that the mind says it's this way and the world says, oh, no, I'm not. So that's why I say exhilarating because it's kind of, especially at my ancient age, it's kind of refreshing to go, oh, okay, so you still don't know anything. The world is certainly still capable of surprising you, you know, now reboot and take another run at it. So I think in Ghoul, that's, that's basically what he finds out is that he had this version of the world that was very, to him, you know, intelligent and responsive and, and even positive, And then the whole thing falls apart. So then where are we, what resources do we have at that moment? You know, that that's kind of what I felt the story is, is saying or is living in. To finish it off, can I get you to read a piece of one of the stories? Sure. I'll, I'll read a little bit from the story you mentioned. We, we mentioned um, Love Letter. And this is just that grandfather kind of turning to the grandson in the form of this letter. And, and uh, so he says, your grandmother and I and many others would have had to be more extreme people than we were during that critical period to have done whatever it was we should have been doing. Our lives had not prepared us for extremity, to mobilize or be as focused and energized as I can see, in retrospect, we would have needed to be. We were not prepared to drop everything in defense of a system that was, to us, like oxygen, used constantly, never noted. We were spoiled, I think I'm trying to say. As were those on the other side, willing to tear it all down because they had been so thoroughly nourished by the vacuous plenty in which we all lived, a bountiful condition that allowed people to thrive and opine and swagger around like kings and queens while remaining ignorant of their own history. What would you have had me do? What would you have done? I know what you'll say. You would have fought. But how? How would you have fought? Would you have called your senator? In those days, you could still at least record your feeble message on a senator's answering machine without reprisal. But you might as well have been singing or whistling or passing wind to it for all the good it did. 
Well, we did that. We called. We wrote letters. Would you have given money to certain people running for office? We did that as well. Would you have marched? For some reason, there were suddenly no marches. Organized a march? Then and now, I did not and do not know how to arrange a march. I was still working full-time. This dental thing had just begun. That rather occupies the mind. Would you have had me drive down to Watsonville and harangue the officials there? They were all in agreement with us at that time. Would you have armed yourself? I would not and will not, and I do not believe you would either. I hope not. By that, all is lost. Just before we finish, the book's out on the 18th of October. George, you're going to be in the UK for a few days around the launch for the first time since the Booker Prize. Where can people see you? I'm doing an event with Hannah McInnes at the South Bank Center, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. I haven't done any live events for ah, for three years or something. So it's, it's and uh, it'll be great to be back in London again, too. And that's on the 22nd of October at the South Bank Center. So I've been talking to George Saunders. We've been talking about his new collection of short stories, Liberation Day, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. George, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Neil, thank you. It's always a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.